When Francisco was in his 20s, a few short minutes dramatically changed his life. It began with a girl at a bar. We were in a dark area, privately at the back, just necking, I guess. And I opened my eyes. I saw that there was a, um, a flashlight pointing at us. So I responded immediately thinking that it was a joke. I realized it was a bouncer, but I flipped him the bird and I honestly thought he was just making fun. But the bouncer wasn't joking. Offended by the gesture, he swore at Francisco and put him in a headlock. The bouncer dragged him out of the bar, using Francisco's head to open the heavy metal doors. And once outside, dropped him on the ground and told him he was banned from the club. Francisco's friends were also thrown out, and the scene escalated quickly. A bunch of drunk 20-somethings in the middle of the street arguing with a couple of bouncers. Suddenly, someone, and to this day he's not sure who, hit Francisco from behind. I launched off my feet into the middle of the street and landed on my face. A police officer handcuffed him. Francisco hopped up on adrenaline, taunted the bouncer. And he kicked me in the face with my handcuffs on, and he fractured my face in five places. And that's when I, I went down and I came back up, and I was told I was being arrested for assault. For assaulting who? Exactly. Francisco will be the first to admit that he shouldn't have given the bouncer the finger. And he probably shouldn't have taunted him outside the club. But he didn't assault anyone that night. It took two years for the case to go to trial. During that time, he wasn't allowed to drink alcohol or hang out with his friends who were at the club with him that night, which is a pretty big deal when you're 20. And he had to pay a fair bit of money for a lawyer. Finally, he got his day in court, and the charges against him were dismissed. And just like that, the ordeal was over. Or so he thought. Welcome to episode four of Objection, a four-part series where we look at injustices big and small and talk about how the law can be used to address them. I'm Nadine Bloom. And I'm Kelly Doctor. Our criminal justice system is based on the idea that a person is innocent until proven guilty. But employers don't treat people that way, and they don't have to. If they find out that you have a history with the police, whether it be a criminal charge, or even if you were just named in an investigation, they may draw unfair conclusions about you and decide you're just not worth the risk. Years after the incident at the club, Francisco went back to school to work with people with developmental disabilities. Then he got a job, which required a criminal records check. But they let him start working before the results came back. I got a call that week, and I was like, oh my god, I know what this is about. I walked in. They're like, it shows that you have criminal charges. And I'm like, but it says dismissed. And it was immediate. I was fired on the spot. The law as it currently stands doesn't provide any protection for people like him. And Francisco's experience isn't unique. I would say that the uniform experience for people is a real shock because when they're in the criminal court and the judge dismisses their charges or withdraws their charges or whatever it is, and in a lot of cases, actually say to people, you're free, you can walk, this will not follow you. And then people are really struck by a deep sense of injustice when it comes back to haunt them. This is Erin Simpson. She's a lawyer practicing refugee law and charter litigation. We spoke to Erin and to our colleague Emma Phillips, who've been talking to people affected by the issue of discrimination based on non-conviction records. A non-conviction record isn't a technical legal term. For the purposes of this podcast, it's anything that involves an interaction with the police that doesn't end up in a criminal conviction or a finding of guilty. This includes charges that have been withdrawn or dismissed, like in Francisco's case. It also includes situations where the police make a note about you in their file, but don't charge you with anything. 
Records might be kept on you if you're a suspect in an investigation or if the police are called because you're having a mental health crisis. Here's Emma Phillips. You know, the police are able to collect much more information than ever before, and that's maybe appropriate from a technical policing perspective. I think part of what we're seeing is a tension now between information that's necessary for policing and that's appropriate for policing and information that's necessary or appropriate for employment purposes. And the Human Rights Code really does not address that gap or that tension. The Human Rights Code is one of the most important laws that protect people from discrimination by their employers. But it only gives protection based on a limited number of grounds, like race, gender, or sexual orientation. So like race or gender, a non-conviction record is basically permanent. It's You're not really able to change it. It's associated with significant social stigma. There's historic discrimination associated with it as well. Because a non-conviction record is something you can't change, some people think it should be a ground protected in the Human Rights Code. But unfortunately, it's not. Mark DePellum found that out the hard way. Back in 2007 and 2008, um, I was charged with several criminal offenses, among them possession for the purpose of trafficking and cultivation of marijuana. I was driving a friend to his residence, and we pulled in the driveway, and that was the day that the Peel Regional Police were there executing a search warrant. I was taken into custody in the driveway, which I found kind of strange because I didn't have any contraband on me. I was not in possession of any drugs at the time. I was just in the driveway of the residence. However, I later learned that anybody who's on the premises when a search warrant is being executed can be charged with whatever offense the activities at that domicile suggest. Two years later, the charges against Mark were withdrawn before trial. But while he was still waiting for his trial, he was hired as a customer service agent. The job didn't involve working with vulnerable people, nor did it involve working with sensitive financial information. Nonetheless, his employer asked him to get a criminal records check. So he did and it showed the pending charges and the court dates. He presented this information to his boss. And so I lost my job. I I stated quite boldly to him that I felt this was discrimination, um, that I was innocent on these charges, that I was merely charged. I had not been convicted of anything. He stated that he didn't care and showed me to the door. Mark got another customer service job about three weeks later and decided this time to tell his boss about the charges before the record check came back. And at first it seemed that everything was okay. And then on my second day of work, they pulled me out of a training room and brought me into an office with three managers and a human resources consultant, asked me a whole pile of questions, many which I felt were inappropriate, and then they dismissed me as well. Mark filed a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal. He relied on a section of the Human Rights Code that protects people from discrimination based on a record of offenses. Mark thought that since he didn't actually have a criminal conviction, he would be protected from discrimination based on his record. Unfortunately, the tribunal ruled against him. The Human Rights Code defines the term record of offenses in a really narrow way. It's limited to two things. The first is a protection for people who have been convicted of a, quote, provincial offense. This is anything made illegal under a provincial law. Many of you listening may have been convicted of one of these. The classic example is a speeding ticket. The second protection is for people who have been convicted of a, quote, offense for which a pardon has been granted. Now, if you have a criminal defense lawyer sitting next to you, They'd point out that the law was changed and you can no longer get a pardon, only a record suspension. But the point is that if you have a pardon or record suspension, an employer can't discriminate against you for that incident. Mark lost his case at the tribunal, but his story doesn't end there. Sometime later, he had another brush with the law. This time, he was convicted for possession of a firearm, 
It was an antique seven-shot twenty-two short revolver. Um, it was a little miniature gun. It was made in 1897. It would fit in the palm of your hand. So even though it wasn't antique, the barrel was too short. And we have a law in Canada against prohibited firearms. Some of the firearms that are prohibited are because they're too easily concealable. Um, and this gun was so small, you probably could have worn it like as a pendant on a chain around your neck. Wait, and why, why did you have the firearm? You know what? It, this might sound like a stupid answer. But it was just a really cool little gun. I've always had a fascination with firearms. As a kid, every year I wanted a puppy and a pellet gun for Christmas. <laughs> and my parents wouldn't give me either. Um, so eventually, as an adult, I was actually able to get a pellet gun for myself. What about the puppy? In 2012, I actually got a three-year-old chihuahua given to me. <laughs> and her name is Baby. And she loves cheesies and pizza. So what we have here is this bizarre situation where you actually get more protection if you're found guilty of a crime. Because Mark was convicted of possession of a weird little gun, if he one day gets a record suspension, an employer won't be able to hold it against him. But that same employer could fire him if they learned of Mark's drug charges, the ones that were actually dropped. There are some academics that have written and spoken on the subject, and they call it the indefensible paradox. So if you've been charged with an offense, you have absolutely no grounds for protection in human rights in Ontario. Even if you haven't been formally charged, if you've been investigated by the police, if the police use your name, if somebody made some sort of false accusation against you, you can be discriminated against and you can't do anything about it. You don't have a leg to stand on. There may still be situations where it's reasonable for an employer to take into account a non-conviction record. Emma explains. There may be a case where somebody has been charged with something, the charges were dropped, and the nature of those charges are particularly relevant to the kind of job that you're applying for. And it's appropriate for the employer to say, no, the fact that you were arrested for a, a weapons charge uh, means that I don't want to have you as a caretaker for children. That might be an appropriate decision for an employer to make. But what we're saying is that there has to be that step where the employer has to actually make a reasonable connection between the nature of the charge. They have to ask you about the circumstances in which the charge came about. And then they have to make a reasonable decision about whether or not to employ you. They can't just make an arbitrary decision. So it's about the arbitrariness. That's the concern at the end of the day particularly if it's on racial grounds or other grounds that are protected under the Human Rights Code. We think that discrimination based on non-conviction records contributes to the systemic discrimination in employment faced by certain people or groups. One young man that we met lives near Jane and Finch, and uh, he was accompanying his sister's boyfriend to some apartment, didn't know the occupants of the apartment. Five minutes later, the police bang down the door and it's a guns and gangs sweep. You know, they arrest everybody in the apartment. He gets arrested along with everybody else. But all the charges are eventually dropped because the police were very clear that and they'd been watching the apartment for however many months. They knew that he was just a bystander. But he ends up with these very serious charges on his record. And he was employed at the time. His employer, uh, several months later, requested a vulnerable sector check. He failed the check. He lost his job. The, the likelihood of a gangs and guns raid in a neighborhood of African Canadians is just that much more likely than in a white neighborhood, right? So it was a very clear link between race and interaction with police. But it's not just racialized groups who have a disproportionate number of interactions with the police. According to Statistics Canada, approximately one in five people who've had contact with the police have had a mental health issue or a substance abuse disorder. People who are trans or gender nonconforming have also been shown to have more frequent interactions with law enforcement than others. 
Given that there may be a correlation between race, mental health, or gender identity and having a non-conviction record, there certainly seems to be a compelling argument to expand the protections in the Human Rights Code. And in fact, last year, MPP Natalie DeRose introduced a bill that would have provided broader protection against discrimination on the basis of police records. But the law didn't get enough support to pass in the legislature. But maybe there's a way to bring a charter challenge to expand the protections in the Human Rights Code. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms is a Bill of Rights entrenched in our Constitution, the Supreme Law of Canada. If other legislation, like the Human Rights Code, violates rights protected in the Charter, the legislation itself can be challenged in court. And if that challenge is successful, courts will order that the problematic legislation be amended to comply with the Charter. There's a famous case decided by the Supreme Court in the late 90s called Vreen v. Alberta. In that case, an employee was fired for breaching his employer's policy on, quote, homosexual practices. He filed a human rights complaint with the Alberta Human Rights Commission, but it was tossed because there was no protection for sexual orientation in the human rights legislation. Reen argued that failing to include legal protections for sexual orientation, a personal characteristic like race or marital status, violated Section 15, the equality provision of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The Supreme Court agreed. The court ordered that sexual orientation should be read into the legislation. In other words, the court should read the Human Rights Code as though the words sexual orientation were there, thereby protecting LGBT people from discrimination in employment. Emma and Aaron explain how a similar argument might convince a court to read in non-conviction records as a ground protected by the Human Rights Code. Because the Human Rights Code is under-inclusive in the definition of record of offenses and does not address the kind of discrimination that people who are racialized, who have mental health disabilities... People with fluid sexual identities. Right. So a number of groups who are disproportionately targeted by police. The Human Rights Code does not adequately provide them with protection and discrimination by employers. It breaches Section 15 of the Charter. But one of the big challenges in bringing forward a case like this is gathering the evidence to prove that there's a concrete link between race, mental health, or being trans or gender nonconforming, and having a non-conviction record. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence, and there's research on some aspects of the problem, but the picture is by no means complete. So the time may not be right to launch a lawsuit to take on this issue. This issue of non-conviction records got a lot of public attention a few years ago. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association wrote a number of reports on the issue. The Toronto Star ran some stories, and the government responded. In November 2018, a new law will come into effect that places limits on the kinds of information that police can release to employers, particularly as it relates to non-conviction records. And while it's a positive development, it doesn't fully address the problem of employment discrimination. The legislation deals with how the police can disclose things. It doesn't deal with what employers can ask for in terms of information and what employers can do with that information once they've got it. There's a number of other ways that employers can get their hands on this type of information. And so our argument is we need to deal with this both from sort of the demand side and from the supply side. And that the Ontario legislation deals with the supply side but doesn't address the demand side. In other words, the new law doesn't prevent employers from asking questions on a job application. And it also doesn't deal with the problem that employers may find out about run-ins with the police from all kinds of sources, newspaper articles, Facebook, or gossip. And there's nothing to prevent employers from holding that information, however they get it, against you. In the case of the young man that I mentioned from the Jane and Finch area, he did get his record expunged, but by that point, his record 
had essentially been transferred to the employer's database. And so when he has reapplied for this position with this company, which is sort of the dominant employer in this sector, that record keeps popping up, even though he now has his police record has been expunged. So where does this leave us? While a charter challenge seems like a good way to take on the problem, more research needs to be done before we think a case could be successful. And in this current political climate, it seems unlikely that the government would fix the problem on its own initiative. On the other hand, all things considered, Doug Ford might be sympathetic to the view that reports of alleged criminal behavior in one's past shouldn't be a barrier to their future career opportunities. Who knows? Maybe he'll do the right thing. We'd like to thank Goldblatt Partners for supporting us in the podcast. Thanks to all the lawyers who let us record them in our high-tech recording studio, aka The File Room. Our transcriptionist is Yasha Asik. Music for this episode by Mon Plaisir, Jazz Har, Chris Sabrisky, Maiden, and Lee Rosevere. See show notes for full credits. Special thanks to Dan Shepard, Aaron Simpson, Emma Phillips, and Vanessa Payne for their feedback on this episode. We'd also like to thank Francisco and Mark for sharing their stories with us and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association for their work on this issue and for bringing it to our attention. And finally, we need to thank our producer extraordinaire, Ellie gordon Marshall. Ellie not only made us sound good, but she gave us thoughtful insight on how to tell a compelling story. Visit our website at ellegm.com.